Welcome to season one of Reclaiming Jesus Now. 10 conversations with Jim Wallace, exploring the themes of his new book, Christ in Crisis. We're your host. I'm William Matthews. And I'm Allison Trowbridge. This is the first of 10 weekly episodes. Today, we'll be discussing the first chapter titled, What About Jesus? Let's jump right in. So, Jim, I am really excited that I was given an advanced copy to read your amazing new book, Christ in Crisis. I think this is the most pivotal conversation that we should be having here in this country. And you have been brave enough to write a book to talk about the last three to five years, particularly the context of the American church and a real crisis of faith that's happening with this generation. So why this one? Why this moment? Why Christ in crisis? Why right now? I always knew that I would write uh, a Jesus book. Mm. I've got shelves of books that are about Jesus. Mm. This book is about Jesus. I always knew that I'd want to write a book just about Jesus. Mm. And this this came to be the right time for me to write my Jesus book, if you will. Mm. When I used to visit one of my mentors, Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, and now apparently uh, headed for sainthood, though Dorothy always said, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be written off that easily. <laughs> I love the way she said that. But when I would go to see her at Mary House on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there was a big graffiti quote on the side of a building near her place and always caught my attention. Here's what it read. It's gone now, long mm. gone, but it read this. Reporter, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? Gandhi, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> I love that. I love that too. I love that. So as I sat down to write this book, uh, I did another version of that. Uh, I wrote this out. So perhaps what many young people today of many faiths or no religion at all, what would be a good question that might be on their minds right now? It might read something like this. Reporter, what do you think of Christians following Jesus? Millennial, I think that would be a good idea. <laughs> I love that. And it, yeah, and I think that I think that rings true. So who is Jesus? What did he say? Did he mean it? Hmm. Now, these are questions that I think are relevant both inside and outside the boundaries of Christian faith. If you say you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, you'd want to know what Jesus is saying or said or what it means for us today. So what I decided to do was take eight questions that Jesus either asked or prompted. Either he asked the question or in a conversation, he prompted these questions. So, Yeah, take us through them. Yeah. Well, one is the neighbor question. Who is my neighbor? Maybe the critical one right now for what's happening in this country. Who is my neighbor? Um, the image question. How do we regard people who are different than us? Are we all made in the image of God or not? That's the foundation of any kind of notion of human rights or citizenship or dignity. Are we made in Imago Dei? The truth question. What is the truth, as Pilate 
asked as he was losing a debate with Jesus. The power question, who is the greatest? The fear question. Fear is very bipartisan now. And yet Jesus said over and over, be not afraid. What does that mean? The Caesar question. Strong men leaders always want to say, uh, do what I say. What do we owe to Caesar? Jesus answered that question. The peacemaker question. Why does Jesus say it'll be the peacemakers who will be called the children of God? Why does he single out those who engage in what we might call today conflict resolution? Yeah. The discipleship question. What was the final test Hmm. of discipleship? What did Jesus say right before he was crucified and resurrected? What did he mean when he said, as you treat the least of these, that's how you treat me. He says, be salt and light. What does that mean? So that's what got me to write this book. But the way it started for me was well, right after the 2016 election and the beginning of a new administration in 2017, I was flooded by phone calls. I can only imagine. Flooded, legions of phone calls. <laughs> from people who were afraid, Mm. black pastors, fearing the targeting of their young people, their young men in particular, Mm. by the police, with no accountability Mm. from that happening. Black parents, every black parent I know, every black parent I know, is now even more afraid of their kids walking out the door to school. And that's the fundamental difference in a way of life for black parents and white parents in America. And most white parents have no idea this is going on. Um, People of uh, Hispanic descent, Latina, Latinos, uh, terrified that they're going to lose their families. Families are very mixed in America, documented and undocumented. So what does it mean every morning to wonder if at dinner your family will still be together. Um, Pastors were calling. Activists were calling. Senators were calling saying, what do I fight? Mm. (laughs) I don't know what to fight. There Mm. are too many things every day to fight. The university president would call. This is changing my university. What do I do? Head of a church called and said, I'm just reacting Mm. to refugees, protecting them, immigrants. I'm not acting. I'm not asserting my faith. Can we talk about that? So all these questions came. I didn't know what to say. I had many of the same questions. So they kept waking me up, these questions, every morning. I wouldn't get past 4.30 or 5 any day. And I finally began to get up and go downstairs and think and be quiet and pray. And then I asked myself, what scriptures should I be meditating on? What should I be reading again? And I tried the Gospels, but (laughs) I love the Gospels, but they just made me more discouraged because when I saw how far we are from the Gospels, what Jesus said, what he did, what he taught us, we're so far from that. Even in the churches, 
reading the Gospels made me depressed. Mm. Then the prophets, I love the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, all of them. Yet again, speaking the truth to power, mm. I didn't see that going on. That was discouraging. Yeah. Finally, I thought, well, what about the early Christians, the mm. early church, the mm. first believers in Jesus who were facing much of what we are, which was enormous political injustice and religious hypocrisy. Mm. So they had an, an initial crisis, how to, how to bring Jesus into that, into that moment. So I started reading the first chapters of Acts, mm. the beginning of Acts. And of course I've read it all before, but any of us who read the scriptures, again, new, fresh, with new questions, always find new things, always find different things. So I began to look at Acts, and I was struck by how Peter and John coming out of uh, uh, the, the city by the gate, there's a disabled person, a beggar, asking for money. And he wants money, and they say, gold and silver have I none, but rise up and walk, healed in the name of Jesus. Then they go out to preach. 3,000 people converted the first day. 5,000 the next, teaching, preaching, all in the name of Jesus. Everything they did, healing, teaching, preaching, it said in the text, was done, those words, in the name of Jesus. Then they get arrested. And the text says that the authorities regarded them as ordinary and uneducated men. They weren't at all threatened by these disciples of Jesus. But they had them leave the room, and they said, what do we do with them? What do we do with these guys? They're causing the people to respond, and there's a rising of, of, uh, of uh, something is happening with the people that scares us, that concerns us. What do we tell them to do? And so they brought them back in, and they said, okay, here's the thing. Don't speak in that name anymore. They weren't worried about their names, these new leaders. They knew they were, they said, companions of Jesus. But they weren't like new nonprofit, faith-based organization leaders now competing for media space and funding in the foundation world, each trying to lift up their cause. Mm -hmm. They were speaking and preaching and teaching and healing in Jesus' name. So what they said was, don't do that anymore. Don't speak in that name. They were afraid of the name of Jesus. And they said, in effect, well, you say what you will, but we cannot, we cannot not speak, speak of him. Yeah. in his name. And so they did. And then it struck me one morning early, it's the name of Jesus that's the threat to power. The name of Jesus that can bring us to faith. The name of Jesus that can heal us and teach us. And what would it mean to bring us back to Jesus? Now, what does it mean to come back to Christ? What does it mean to realize we have neglected Jesus for so long. Really, 
try to avoid the things he was saying? What would it mean in this moment to do what Christians best always do in a crisis? Come back to Jesus. The church leaders would often ask me, is this a Bonhoeffer moment? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, pastor, scholar. And here's what he asked. He said, the question is always, who is Jesus Christ for us today? So I began to say, that's the question. Yeah. For Bonhoeffer and for us, who is Jesus Christ for us right now? And that, I think, is this idea of reclaiming Jesus is the heartbeat of this book. It is. Um, Bishop Michael Curry, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, was one of those church leaders who was calling. And so he came down, and we had a long conversation. We shut down a restaurant. Really? Um, <laughs> he wrote the foreword to the book, and he now calls that, that meal a soul meal, where we talked about the soul of the nation and the integrity of faith. And I told him the Acts reflection, and he said, that's it. It's the name of Jesus. We have to reclaim that again. So we called several friends of ours who are all old enough to be called elders. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing this a long time. We had a retreat on Ash Wednesday at his place, and he and I convened this retreat of about a dozen elders and we, on an Ash Wednesday, you pray and you confess your sins and your complicity in the sins that have taken over this nation. So we did. And out of that prayer came a lot of then discernment. What's our responsibility? And we thought we have to commend our brothers and sisters to come back to Jesus. So the Reclaiming Jesus Declaration came out of that. Uh, moment on Ash Wednesday. It was a liturgical cycle, and uh, we thought and prayed all through Lent about what we'd say. Uh, this was going to be about Jesus, not about a politician or just politics. Who is Jesus? What did he say? What does that mean right now for us? And this was a declaration that you came out with. Out of the retreat yeah. came this this Reclaiming Jesus Declaration. And what was in that declaration? Well, uh, it's in the book uh -huh. uh, at the end here. It says, we are living through perilous and polarizing times as a nation with a dangerous crisis of moral and political leadership at the highest levels of our government mm -hmm. and in our churches. We believe the soul of the nation and the integrity of faith are now at stake. We try to say, here are the places where our faith is now at stake, far deeper than politics, rising above the political polarization in the country, and to ask, what about Jesus? And when that declaration came out, five million people wow. responded to it. We did a little video just with these elders each saying a few words of the Declaration. Our country's leaders have co-opted the name of Jesus. So we are commending this statement and reclaiming the name of Jesus. It's our duty as leaders of the church to speak truth in humility and love. 
But when politics undermine our theology, we must examine those politics. Therefore, we believe. We believe. We believe each human being is made in God's image and likeness. And that racial bigotry is a brutal assault of the image of God. Therefore, we reject the resurgence of white nationalism and racism on many fronts, including the highest levels of political leadership. And we reject any doctrines or political strategies that use race as a tool to divide us. We believe we are one body. In Christ, there's to be no oppression based on race, gender, identity, or class. Therefore, we reject the misogyny, harassment, assault, and abuse of women in our churches and country. And the silence that allows this sin to endure. We believe how we treat the hungry, the stranger, the sick, the prisoner, is how we treat Christ himself. Therefore, we reject the policies that would abandon the most vulnerable children of God. We deplore the growing attacks on immigrants and refugees. We will not accept the neglect of low-income families and children. We believe that truth is morally central to our lives. Jesus promises that the truth will set us free. Therefore, we reject the lies that have invaded our political and civil life. The normalization of lying presents a profound moral danger to the fabric of society. We believe that Christ's way of leadership is servanthood, not domination. Therefore, we reject any moves toward autocratic political leadership and authoritarian rule. Both of which threaten democracy and the common good. We believe Jesus when he tells us to go into all nations and to make disciples. Our churches are part of an international community. And we should, in turn, love and serve all its inhabitants rather than seek first our country's dominance over all others. Therefore, we reject an America first philosophy as theological heresy. We share a patriotic love for our country. But we reject xenophobic or ethnic nationalism that places our country over others. 2,000 years ago, claiming Jesus is Lord was a dangerous and political act. Because if Jesus was Lord, Caesar was not. 2,000 years later, we are reclaiming that name of Jesus reclaiming his holy and powerful name from those who would co-opt it and wield it to seek their own gain. Jesus is our light in the darkness. In moments of moral crisis like this, it is time for a fresh confession of faith. Will you join us in reclaiming the name of Jesus? Five million people. Uh, within two hours, there were 50,000. I called Bishop Curry. I said, Bishop Curry, 50,000 have responded in two hours. He was on his way to England to preach the royal sermon. 
Some of you might at have the royal wedding, heard yes. or seen that yeah. at the royal wedding. And so, and then it was before he got up to preach, we talked. And I said, Bishop, a million people have responded. He said, how many? I said, a million. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first week. The second week, another million. Now five million have. Because it was coming back to Jesus. So we then released this declaration uh, at Pentecost, because at Pentecost, in our liturgical ark, which we were in, the disciples came down from their upper room in fear, and they took their word to the streets. Uh, Pentecost is taking the word to the streets. And so we gathered in a big church, National City Christian Church, holds a thousand people. And I thought we would need more. And my team said, that's crazy. But we did. So we got Luther Place as well across the street. 1,300 filled National City on a Thursday night. 700 more filled Luther Place. And there were 400 more just on the steps of National City. All these elders who are great preachers, uh, the Howard University Choir, all that got heard all over Thomas Circle. People sitting on benches, overflow churches, uh, a, a beautiful square in town, and they all sat on bench and listened. And then we, 3,000 of us, marched. Well, march is the wrong word. 3,000 of us vigiled, Amen. walked prayerfully and silently to the White House and read the Declaration on the sidewalk outside. There were lots of miracles that day. All these preachers sticking to two minutes each, which is a miracle. <laughs> that is, I would say, the biggest miracle itself. of all of them. <laughs> and it was a moment where I felt... Uh, Jesus being lifted up. In fact, in the service, I said, tonight is not about Donald Trump. Tonight is about Jesus Christ. This book is not about Donald Trump. This book is about Jesus Christ and how what Jesus said and did and meant applies to our moment right now. Yeah, the specific moment, which is why I think it's so timely. And early in the book, you talk about the word crisis being a Chinese word. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that really struck me. Well, uh, I learned a long time ago that the word crisis or the symbols yeah. in Chinese for the word crisis are a combination of two symbols for one danger mm. and the other opportunity. And it struck me that that's what this moment is, a crisis that is full of danger. I think danger, I'm over, I'm 71 years old. We have never faced a crisis like this one in my lifetime. But the opportunity is there to go to a whole different place, a deeper place. I say we have to go deeper in three, the book says, the book says we have to go deeper in three ways. One, deeper into our faith. What is it that we call faith or mean by our faith? Time to go deeper into our faith, those disciplines, those practices, those times of quiet, those times of, of rest, of, of whatever it is that deepens our faith of biblical study. Uh, let's go back into the gospel. What did Jesus say? What does that mean? How do we answer his questions? We have to answer his questions right now. One, deeper into our faith. Two, deeper into our relationship with each other, particularly across racial boundaries. 
we are being deliberately, strategically divided from each other by, by race, by gender, by fear, by grievances, by resentments, which all is leading to violence. How do we go deeper into our relationship across those boundaries? And third, how do we go deeper in relationship with those people who are the most marginalized? the most vulnerable, who have been attacked, who are the targets, the ones Jesus called the least of these. What's our proximity to them? How we treat them is a test. I call it in the book the final test of our discipleship. How much we love Jesus will be determined by how we treat them. Abraham Lincoln once said, I love this, in his first inaugural, he said, leaders must appeal to our better angels. And that's been picked up by lots of people, our better angels. Now we have leadership at the top of our society that is appealing to our worst demons. Our better angels and our worst demons. None of these demons are new. They've been with us for a long time. But they are being evoked. They are being exacerbated. They are being provoked and, and raised up. And our worst is being raised up. So really, if it's better angels and worse demons, this is spiritual warfare. Paul calls this spiritual warfare. This isn't just a political problem or a political debate. This is about spiritual warfare. This nation has better angels, and this nation has its worst demons. And words like America First have religious implications. America First is a theological heresy. That's what our declaration said. I mean, let's be clear. The body of Christ is a global community. In fact, the body of Christ now is the most diverse human community in the entire world. And the body of Christ now has its center in the global south. No longer in the United States or in Europe, it's the global south. And it is bringing people together just like the early church did across all those boundaries of race and class and gender. This book talks about that. But we have this, this American religion now that is more American than Christian. And it's reflective. It's conformed to the culture, as Romans 12 says. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed, which is an act of worship. And so this book is about how to, in fact, uh, transform our lives and our churches and our communities and our nation by asking what it means to go back to Jesus. Now, I'll say, I love the young people who are called the nuns, all these young people who fill out religious affiliation forms and all these boxes of all these faith traditions, and they check none of the above. Mm -hmm. So we're called, they're called nuns. Not the Catholic kind. Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let me, that's a good, so the nuns, the, the Catholic nuns, I've always loved the N-U-N-S nuns, because when I was starting with all this with Sojourners years ago, I'd be preaching at very evangelical Christian colleges. I'd walk into the chapel or the auditorium, and there'd be two rows of Catholic sisters in their full habit, sitting there. I'd say, sisters, why are you here? And they said, well, Jim, we're local. I said, well, I figured that, but why are you here? Jim, this is a very conservative place. 
I said, yeah, I know that's why I came. We thought somebody should have your back. So I've had nuns for bodyguards for years at conservative Christian colleges. But these nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are the ones who, most of them actually believe in God. They just don't want to affiliate with religion because of what we do or don't do. But they do believe in God. They're very open, and they're very interested in this brown-skinned rabbi who was born in Palestinian-occupied territory. Jesus, remarkably, has survived all of us Christians. And young people, religious or not, are very interested in what he said and what he meant. So part of the audience we have now is a whole new generation who wants to hear Mm. about what Jesus said. Mm. You have a part early on in the book, where you name the problem of our current political religious moment as becoming disconnected with Jesus. What do you think that's looked like for the church, the current American church? Well, I think our conversation should always be about anything in our personal lives or public life. What did Jesus say about this? What, What did he mean? And to me, that led to these eight big questions, like, who is my neighbor? That's at the heart of our political debate. Yes, Who it really is my is. neighbor? What yeah. does that mean? Uh, what is the truth? Not just how many lies are being told, but what is truth? Is there even truth? Who is the greatest? The most wealthy and powerful? Or what do we mean by leadership when Jesus describes leadership as washing each other's feet? I always don't like it when the media talks about religious right or religious left. I don't want to be either. So I say, don't go right, don't go left, go deeper. And for me, that means going deeper into what Jesus said and did. So we're disconnected from that. So when you hear religious people talk, it's often about issues they care about or culture wars or maybe one or two issues that are on their minds. But I don't hear much about Jesus. Why is it that when when faith leaders talk, so many of them, you never hear about Jesus? So let's talk about Jesus again. And let's answer his questions. How then does our following Jesus shape our public life? In fact, the elders decided in this declaration not to call themselves Christian leaders because of what that implies now to so many people about the word Christian. But let's call ourselves, we're all Christian leaders, let's call ourselves followers of Jesus and try and live up to that. There's a part towards the end of the first chapter where you kind of sum up these questions in the book, and I wonder if you might just take a moment and read it to us, because I think it so beautifully and succinctly brings us home. Yeah, it says, In the midst of this crisis, returning to Jesus' teachings— clarifies where we should stand. To sum up those questions, in an environment where the question of whether we will love or hate our neighbor is dangerously at stake, Jesus told us what it means to love our neighbor includes, according to Jesus' definition, those who are different from us. That's the heart of it. When the number of official lies told becomes legion to the point that people doubt the existence of truth anymore, Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
when people don't just fear the things that are reasonable to be concerned about, but are now living in the spirit of fear, the spirit of fear, Jesus repeats this phrase more than almost any other, be not afraid. Mm. When leadership becomes utterly defined by power and by winning and losing, Jesus says leadership is about service and washing each other's feet. When accusation, slander, and attack become the norms of public discourse, Jesus says that those who are the peacemakers, the conflict resolvers, will be called the children of God. When the Caesar test is being defined by strong men who say everything is about them, Jesus instructs his followers to render to Caesar only the limited things that belong to him and to God, everything else. When wealth and power become the definitions of society and politics, Jesus makes the extraordinary judgment that the ultimate measure of our lives, including God's evaluation of the kings of the nations, is what we have done for the least of these. To live an answer to these ways of Jesus is to become the salt and light that societies desperately need, especially when they are in crisis. So those are the questions. And we have to ask them and answer them right now. And that'll take us far deeper than politics. Could change our lives, change our churches, and even change our society. The music you're listening to is provided by this podcast's very own William Matthews. Reclaiming Jesus Now is brought to you by Sojourners. Faith in action for social justice. Podcast produced by Paul Woodhull from the District Productive Podcast Network and Chris Latondres. To learn more about Jim's new book, visit us online at book.sojo.net. That's book.sojo.net. And if you like what you heard today, please help us spark more conversations about the future of faith by telling a friend or leaving a quick review. That makes all the difference. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Wallace. God bless you.